Hello everyone, I'm Will Presti and I'm excited to bring you another episode of Beauties and the Beasts. You know, the word bad boy isn't often thrown around in the world of advertising or business in general, but it certainly applies to today's guest. That's because since the day he started his very first agency in 1987, at the age of just 29, John Bond has been pushing envelopes and stirring up controversy, all while creating hugely successful ad campaigns for some of the world's biggest brands. More than just a rebel, John changed the game. He's credited with inventing the pop-up store, sidewalk advertising, and the concept of viral marketing. But it's his ability to take the pulse of the nation and put a clever spin on the latest hot-button issue that led to him being one of the most iconic advertisers of his generation. Once called the OG of disruptive marketing, John sat down with me here in New York's financial district to discuss a bevy of topics, including his personal beef with Donald Trump and how Kenneth Cole and a dictator's wife gave him his big break. Buckle your seatbelts. This is John Bond. I'm sitting here with Mr. John Bond, the one and only advertising legend. Thanks so much for joining us today. Let's get right into it. You, you founded your first agency in 1987 at just 29 years old, making millennials like myself feel like we haven't accomplished very much in our lives to this point. Um, that's very young. I mean, did you always know that advertising was for you? I mean, when you, you know, little kids watch a, a commercial for Fruit Loops, they say, I want Fruit Loops. Were you saying, I want to create commercials for Fruit Loops one day? I and mean, when did this start? No, not, a, not, not at all. No, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, or else I would have studied more in college. Mm. Uh, I wasn't pre anything. Right. Uh, and there was a recession as I was graduating college. And the summer before, uh, I had a summer job. And at that point, the worst summer job in New York was to be a messenger, okay. not even a bike messenger. And uh, on, foot? We, on foot, right? Yeah. Subway mostly. Okay. We deliver these packages. I'd go to. Madison Avenue and walk in and all these people look really good looking. They look like they were having fun. I go, what is this? Oh, it's an ad agency. I could do that. That That's literally how. I, right. And uh, I found this dusty old copy of David Ogilvy, Confessions of an Advertising Man. They started reading it. And then I said, I, I definitely could do this. This looks, this looks like fun. So that's how I got involved. In what was the first agency you worked for? Every agency I worked for went out of business. <laughs> uh, you know, for, first they go down to a letter and then they, they disappear. Uh, <laughs> first agency was, um, actually, uh, I had an internship at Trout and Reese, which was more marketing consultancy that okay. guys that created positioning, wrote all those books on positioning, which I learned more there than anywhere else because that's the central tenet, I think, in, in marketing. Right. Then I worked at Jordan Case McGrath, uh, Corey Kay and partners and a couple other places. And I always thought, uh, well, this doesn't seem so hard. I think I could do this. Yeah. So that's when I really started thinking, yeah, you know, I think I could do something here. Now, the origin of your first agency that you created, 1987, uh, is just such an interesting story. I was reading it. I was laughing. It involves the 1980s, uh, Amelda Marcos, author James Patterson and Kenneth Cole. Can you please give your version of how it all went down? Patterson, who's like the best-selling author next to, you know, God, or whoever wrote the Bible. Right. <laughs> uh, maybe he's even sold more. Who knows? Uh, and um, he was the creative director of J. Walter Thompson. He had zero novels published. But every morning he got to the office at 5 a.m. and worked on his first novel from 5 to 8. 
and uh, I wanted to elevate the creative reputation of the agency. And Richard and I had, uh, I'd met Kenneth Cole, you know, trolling for clients for an agency. And he's like, I hate agencies, I hate advertising. Well, what do you like? Oh, I, I, you know, I like doing good and public service and that sort of thing. So I sort of filed that away and then I said, Richard, uh, and then I went to his office and again, he had a lot of very attractive women there uh, and, you know, and selling shoes and it was kind of fun environment. And R Richard and I said, well, what if we, uh, we'll just, we'll just comment on public uh, affairs and, and, and on current events and we'll, we'll just have Kenneth give his opinion on it. It won't mm. be quote advertising. Uh, so we, we had this idea originally, the Melda Marcos ad, Melda Marcos bought 2,700 pairs of shoes. She could have at least had the courtesy to buy a pair of ours, signed Kenneth Cole. And we had no media plan. So we'd wait for something to happen. You know, political leader would be in town. Ronald Reagan would say something crazy and we'd do an ad on it. And then boom, you know, the press would pick up on it and it would, you know, we'd spent little teeny bits of money, but it would, it would, it would become part of pop culture. Right. And uh, one day Richard was in the office and Jay Walter Thompson and, uh, and Jim Patterson went around to everyone in the creative department, hundreds of people with these Kenneth Cole ads. He walked into Richard's office as he walked into everybody's office and said, why can't we do ads like this? And Richard said, oh, that's our freelance account. And we quit. <laughs> we that, did do that. That's ad. the story. Well, yeah, we used to use their bullpen to do mechanicals and pay people after work, and people would go, "Oh, I didn't, I didn't know we did Kenneth Cole. That's pretty cool." Wow. So, uh, yeah, and then we, uh, our objective was to go to nice restaurants and break even. So we, we go to expensive restaurants and do freelance and right. make enough money to pay for the bill. So yeah, food and food and wine was always a, a founding principle. And for those. Uh, maybe younger viewers, my generation, who don't know, Imelda Marcos was wife of a dictator, essentially, who yes. had made waves for socializing, going out, the fashion and all, over 2,000, was it 2,000? 2,500. 2,500, okay. Yeah, so. yeah we specialized in, uh, you know, despots and dictators, and <laughs> we did some ads for Donald Trump once, Okay, which was fun. Uh Remember, we got called up to his office, Trump Tower, and he was launching the uh, Trump Taj Mahal Casino. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, just as he was about to launch it, his first big affair kind of breaks. The cover of the New York Post, Marla Maples, and it said, uh, best sex I ever had was with the Donald, signed Marla. And he, he loved that headline, thought yes. it was the greatest. Yes. Ivana didn't like it, but he loved it. So a few days later, Richard and I are in the office and we get a call in the morning and this is back when we had speaker phones and go, it's, it's Don and Marla. We're, we're at the presidential suite of the Trump Taj Mahal, you know, and we have the idea. And Marla says, the camera zooms in on us right now. And I pop my head up from under the covers. I look straight at the camera and I say, Best sex I ever had was at the Trump Taj Mahal. And Donald, you'll pay me a lot of money to say it. True story, word for word. That's unbelievable. 
That's no, <laughs> not really. That's then not it really. was. Now then it's it was, like, I guess. but of course, that's right. what happened. The presidential suite has changed somewhat since the the, the, the term. The let's president say. hasn't exactly. But uh, wow, that's that's unreal. Um, did you guys? You guys did a market Trump steaks or Trump ice or any of these other Trump products? Uh, no, 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 we're not guilty of any, any of those things. I'm no. glad we would have had. But to cut we the were interview. also working for Ivana. Then Trump gave Ivana uh, the plaza to run. Mm. to so like keep her happy and so we were working for her too but donald didn't know it and we'd go back and forth between the plaza and the trump uh tower which are right across the street from each other right. so we were cheating on donald well you know some would say serendipitously yes uh, did you come up with you fired was that you with what you fired the you know, uh, no, the, the we missed that. but you but missed that. we were on the apprentice i'll tell you the apprentice story the assignment was to do a pop-up store for a $400 coffee maker. So they, they gave both, uh, they Googled us, the team, and found us and hired us and said, okay, you have 18 hours to open this pop-up store and you have a $25,000 budget. And, uh, you know, the other, the other group in the competition hired someone else, right? So, so we... We, we open the store and we stay up all night and doing it. And it occurred to me that there's no way we're going to sell any $400 coffee makers in eight hours. Mm. Like no one's just going to walk by and go, I'll just walk into a store that just opened. And I go, I don't want to lose on national TV. So what I did is I took the $25,000 and I said, everybody give out money to everybody you know to come in and buy the coffee makers. So like my nanny kids coming in with the coffee maker and <laughs> we won like 130 to zero. Did the show know you did that? Was that okayed by them? Was that against the rules? You know, or? here's the funny thing yeah. that we now know today. I don't think they cared. <laughs> Someone's all about winning. You know, wow. <laughs> so, That's and I said, I wasn't going to lose on national TV. No. So, and it was a really nice pop-up store, well, but no one would have come in and found it. It would have sold zero, just like the other guys. Well, you guys were known at Kirschenbaum Bond for uh, purpose-driven marketing is a term that we hear. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and why it was so effective for you? Yeah, well, it, it really came out of cynicism, you know, because we were, uh, first of all, before us, there were no agencies started by people in their 20s. Mm. You know, if you look at Mad Men, Don Draper was probably 35 or 40 in the show when they, that's what most people did. They built a reputation and they started an agency with clients or capital or something. We had nothing. Um, so uh, we had this kind of, we don't really believe advertising or like advertising view, which made us very outsiders, but also created a lot of innovation. So, so we go, well, people don't like advertising and who cares if the detergent is like, cleans up stuff 2% better. So we, we gravitated to that to try to do things that made a difference. But again, we didn't call it that. Uh, so yeah, like the Kenneth Cole campaign and a whole bunch of things we did had a higher purpose just because we wanted to, we wanted to ladder the brand up to something people really cared about. Right. I mean, you guys were so innovative though. I mean, we, we touched on a little bit like the first pop-up store. I mean, I've seen it said that you kind of created viral marketing, a lot of guerrilla sort of tactics when yeah. it came to sidewalk ads, using real people in advertising. Can you kind of talk about the impetus for that? Like what made you guys think differently? 
again, it was it was pushing against the status quo of what was done there. Um, so the 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 real the best real people campaign, the best idea we ever had was Snapple, right? Which was the Snapple lady, uh, the Snapple lady who was the secretary in the marketing department, and we had this idea that. Coke and Pepsi are so slick, you know, everything's perfect, everything's orchestrated, you know, and of course, anytime there was a mistake, it would blow up, you know, new Coke or anything like that. Right. And, uh, and we thought, well, Snapple, like, this horrible packaging and everyone wanted to change the packaging. We went, no, it looks like two guys brewing this stuff up in their basement. It looks just imperfect and uh, grassroots. And we thought, uh, you know, how do we do that at scale? Because uh, what, when they came to us, Coke and Pepsi were in the process of knocking off Snapple and rolling it out nationally. And we go, we were only in two markets. How do we roll this out nationally? Took took a decade for this to sort of bubble up to the surface. Right. How do we create that instantly, right? And we have to go on TV. And so we said, you know, uh, the, most people heard us about Snapple through word of mouth, not through advertising. We had this idea, 100% natural marketing, which was uh, we're gonna we're gonna just make the whole company transparent. Everything that happens, we're gonna show the real the way it really does. So we looked for a device to do that, and we saw that Wendy was answering these letters. You know, the fact that people would actually write letters expecting an answer, and we thought, look, we'll answer the letters on TV, but there won't be any scripts. People write letters, we'll pick interesting letters where we think, you know, again, like reality TV, the right. situation's going to create something funny. Sure. So one woman wrote from Indianapolis that she had this dog, Shane, that we called Shane the Wonder Dog. And um, so anytime she opens a Snapple, the dog comes running, loves Snapple. So we go there, we point the camera at the lady and Shane for the whole day. And we opened hundreds of Snapples and the dog just sat <laughs> And we ran that. We just ran that. So a kid would write, uh, I wish everyone in my high school could get Snapple. And all of a sudden the truck pulls up. There's thousands of Snapples we're handing out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was just uh, an event. It wasn't even a, a TV commercial. Sure. Uh, and I, I think what's interesting also about, uh, about Snapple is that um, the, there was a whole culture in the company around the brand. And... Um, you know, I think what really makes a great brand is a culture. And the brand management system that was uh, created by Procter & Gamble in the 50s, I think, is, is outdated because there's no brand culture. There's just a brand manager. You were working on Tide. Now you're working on some other brand, switching around every two years. And today, especially, that was... Uh, that was very visionary because now everything's transparent with the internet. Right. So everything you do, your 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 uh, hiring policy, all it's all marketing. It's all out there, mm. right? And so we were very ahead of its, our time. Uh, so Snapple was so successful that um, Thomas H. Lee, who had one of the first PE funds, uh, introduced me for years when he'd see me at parties as the man that made me two billion dollars, <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, he sold the company to Quaker. Quaker was a classic brand management system. And um, they, they didn't, they, there was, the culture was a bad culture fit with Snapple. Okay. And originally they go, don't let us screw it up. We're not going to change anything, which, are, you know, is impossible. 
And then they started saying things like, you know, Wendy, uh, is she too uh, New York? Which we know means a uh, short, fat woman with a bad Long Island Jewish accent. Right. Uh, and what, what, was, what was, you know, wrong about that was that the average woman in America is a size 14 and they related to Wendy. Right. You know, kind of like Oprah when Oprah was heavy. Sure. Uh, and um, it had nothing to do with uh, ethnicity or anything. It was, it was Wendy was real and, and everything was real and people sensed that uh, they, they trusted the brand and it was authentic. Right. Uh, so, you know, eventually they changed everything, got rid of us and then killed the brand and sold it at, you know, a fraction of what it was, 300 million, I think. Yeah. I think they bought it for 2 billion and everybody got fired, the CEO, the CMO, uh, and all because I think brands are culture. Yeah. I mean, Snapple, you said is probably your favorite, but you worked with so many companies. I mean, uh, I mean, I have you know Coca-Cola, Wendy's, BMW, Tommy Hilfiger, Victoria's Secret, Delta. Was there another? I mean, is there another ad campaign that you came up with where you really feel like you took a company to the next level? You took a brand to to you really just killed it with it that you look back and you're really proud of. Target. Target. Yeah, we went to Target. Uh, it was 1996, and we had another meeting with a mattress company. And at that point, Target was not that different than Kmart or Walmart. They were big box and they were trying to figure out, do we, do we just compete with Walmart on price or we do something else? Right. And no one wanted to go to the meeting because like, oh, it's just a big box. They, you know, we don't have any interest. But and we stopped by while we were there. And we said, yeah, something else. That's what you should do. And, um, you know, interesting thing was they were started by a department store company. And so the sensibility was very department store. And we, we had this whole idea about democratizing style and all of that stuff. And uh, we got all these designers to make for Target, which they never would before. And mm. we advertised them like, you know, in chic places and it just created this whole idea of treating it like it wasn't a big box. Right. And it made it okay for people to go buy clothes and things like that in a big box store. It was, it was very groundbreaking and I should have bought the stock cause it went <laughs> crazy. Um, but that was, you know, they had, then they had other agencies executing. Right. Um, but it was us who came up with that pivot point. Sure. Uh, and again, back to culture, it yeah. has to do with the only reason this was doable was they had all these department store people and a guy named John Pellegrine who had a theater background. So, very theatrical. And again, they would walk around every month with the CEO, who I believe was Bob Ulrich then. And there was no budget. He'd, they'd put all the ideas up around a conference room and they'd go, yeah, that's pretty good. That's worth 5 million. Nah, nah, I forgot that. Hey, that's really good. That's 20 million on that. Right. And literally that's where the budget would come from. It was but they'd really see the idea. Brilliant. They would see the idea first. They'd see the idea and assign a budget and to then it. put a number on instead it. of saying, "Let's have a number and try to squeeze a creative idea within that number." Exactly. There right. was no bud. The budget was zero every year, right? Until proven otherwise. Yeah. Which I thought was also genius. Did you ever have any real a hole clients? Any any just jackass people you did not want to deal with? 
Every agency does. Okay. Uh, the, the trick is to getting to figure out when there's a bad match. And by the way, they, they could have been a great client for someone else. Right. Uh, but I'll tell, you, I'll tell you about some and I'll tell you what we ended up doing. Right. Because uh, I got frustrated with this sort of like, you know, computer dating thing with clients. Mm. And um, I, I, I hired a guy who was a, a Myers-Briggs personality profiling expert. And I used to have him come in every month and teach us. And also I hired more diverse people. Right. So I could cast the sort of process-oriented anal retentive client with this person. You know, I even hired somebody from our Citibank client to, to play that role. And, um, you know, it, it, those sort of clients, I'd have to give the creative people a pill to get through the meeting, but, right. it, but it would work. And then we, we got a lot bigger and more successful then. Because sometimes the, the, the a-hole client isn't necessarily an a-hole. It's that you're a bad match. Mm. So there's a maturity level that you have to get through to get it. But there were some that really were. That really were. You want to name names? A-hole clients. I mean, uh, this is the forum. I don't this think Donald place. Trump was my favorite client. Not that not <laughs> Plus, he didn't pass. <laughs> so that immediately uh, just that takes him down a bit of a notch. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other thing about, about clients was uh, different cultures. Yeah. You know, so again, uh, you learn to adapt to personality types. Like we had BMW for years and, you know, very Germanic. It was like, you will do this for this price and the sales will go up. Or we get someone else to do it for less money. Right. Stab you in the front. And I was like, okay. The French I found very difficult to deal with mm. because the meeting happened before the meeting and they had already decided something, but no one told you or invited you. Really? So I found them very often very difficult. Because you um, didn't know what you were, at least with the, the Germanic. I, I, I could deal with the getting. stab me in the front, tell me what it is and that's how it is. You know, but again, different, they're different personality fits for different, for different kind of clients. That's so interesting. You know, if they let us do good work, then we could, we didn't matter. Sure. Then everything else was fine. We could put up with anything. If they, if, if they, uh, you know, uh, had the 11 housewives in a focus group pick the ad by voting mm. and basically made them the CMO, that's a bad client, even if we liked them personally. Right. So we were very focused on doing really good work and could put up with anything if we could do good work and couldn't put up with anything if we couldn't. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's understandable. Um, what process, I guess every agency probably has a different, as you mentioned, culture, even different processes. So can you walk us through the process at Kirschenbaum Bond and Partners of how an idea would go, you know, as I like to say, from, from brain to boardroom to billboard? I mean, what, what is that actual right, exercise right. like? Well, first of all, agencies always say they have this process, okay? And it's usually bullshit. Okay. Uh, because uh, everyone knows if you have a good idea that didn't happen in the process, good. And if you don't have a good idea, bad. Right. So, for example, right? But clients always want to see a process to know that you can replicate things. Right. And what I used to say is, okay, let me tell you, let's talk about process. Okay. Uh, Michael Jordan in the 90s, right? 
would be able to run up and jump from the foul line and dunk the ball from the foul line. And let's look at the process he went through. He had 73% of his weight on his left foot and he had a hip and flex and this and that. And if I said to you, go ahead, now you do it. Well, I can't. I go, exactly. And you can't do this either. Right. <laughs> So at the end of the day, talent is a large factor well, and just getting it. it. Talent and, and like, look, my process is, as I've done it a thousand zillion times, I look at something or an ad or logo or something and it hits me emotionally. Mm. Like, boom, I, it hits me before I can even think about it. And then I have to take a few seconds and think, why did it hit me that that was wrong or so right? And then I have to articulate in rational terms, why it made me feel a certain way. Mm -hmm. And that's my process. Right. Um, because a lot of grand people who went to Harvard, I used to go, damn, these people went to Harvard and they're so dumb. <laughs> How is that possible? <laughs> and I go, you know why? Because they're intellectualizing what the right thing is. They're looking for a lesson and they are disconnected from how it makes me feel. Mm. And unless you're tuned into that, and you can look at it through the eyes of your target audience and go, that would make me feel this way. Unless you can do that, you can never ever become, become good at marketing because in the end, that's, that's what you're trying to do is predict right. how it's going to impact people. That's interesting. It's got, you know, there's gotta be a heart element to it, not just your head. I mean, it's gotta it's be gotta both. You need to have both sides of the brain. Now, you kind of alluded to this, but I mean, your agency was characterized by its sort of commitment to, I mean, outcasts were sort of welcome. Yeah. You wanted people that had extreme acceptance of all kinds of people, all kinds of ideas. Um, what's behind that philosophy? Why do you think that that was successful? What's behind the philosophy is any agency. It's the people who, find, who found the agency have a culture. And that always is the culture of the agency. Um, so we, look, the, the, the agency had people that were not accepted. They were, you know, outcasts in high school or they were, they were gay or they were something, right. right? And always felt that they weren't comfortable where they were. Mm. They had a work personality and a real personality. And this was the first place where they were both the same. And... Um, you know, people look at what's politically correct. And I, I think the most politically correct you can be is to have people uh, be supported for being their self. Mm. But that said, there were all kinds of crazy things that we did that today would be considered, I don't know, politically incorrect. Uh, I remember we had our 10th anniversary party and um, Trevor, the African-American cross-dressing receptionist. Right. Uh, uh, put on a Marilyn Monroe blonde wig and jumped out of a cake and sat on my lap and Richard's lap and sang happy birthday, Mr. President. <laughs> I don't know if that would go on today, but it happened. Um, you guys at your industry, I mean, at, at your agency, you were known as being rebels, as being agitators. You would push the envelope a lot. Um, some people, a lot of controversial ads. Um, but as I looked at all of your ads, they're all clever. There's so much creativity in there. Do you think that if you're going to be controversial, you have to be clever? Otherwise, you're just doing it for the sake of shock value and it's, it's not really. I, I think there has to be a point to it. 
you know, um, controversy for just the sake of controversy is is superficial and, and doesn't really work. You know, I mean, we we once did uh, we once had a dumb idea for um, Gannett out of home for billboards because everyone thought billboards eh, kind of low impact and. Um, we wanted to kind of create something controversial, and um, one of the billboards in Detroit actually getting, ended up getting burned down by a Muslim group. Uh, so that was going a little far. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, you, you know, when you when you have, I mean, you you got reached out to uh, by ethnic advocacy groups. Even the Reagan White House got a little peeved at one point yeah. when these things would happen. More often than not, would you take a step back and say, maybe we're going too far? Or would you say we're doing something right? Oh, we're definitely doing something right. Yeah. Definitely doing something. Because um, remember, there was no social media then. So to create something that got viral, basically it had to be on the news and written about right. by journalists. Right? That's not so easy. So you really had to grab you their You have attention. to really a billboard create on fire news. Is, yeah. That's going to make news, you know. Right. So the bar was much higher. And today, viral, bah, you yeah. know, it's it's much lower. You don't really need to have what you needed to have then. Well, I mean, obviously a, a flaming billboard, but which ad of yours do you think created the biggest shockwave? I mean, which one just had the most people where you had to just deal with everybody I, in a good or bad way? Oh, my gosh. Did you see this ad? Uh, Donna Rice, no excuses ad when Gary Hart was running for president. And um, we, uh, we never actually spent any money on media. We just had these tapes of the commercial and literally at this press event handed them out <laughs> to all the state. They just ran the commercial right. endlessly for free. Uh, but that was very controversial. But that was a jeans brand. Again, you know, the, we had this idea called the volume dial, which is how high you turn it up depended on the tonality of each brand. What was the biggest win of your career? If you had to say something that either a client that you fought to get and it worked out great, an idea that you really pushed for, something that meant a lot to you, that maybe you had some resistance and you look back and you're just proud that you consider it a great win. Oh geez, getting car count. We, we lost nine straight car pitches uh, till, till we ended up getting BMW. Wow. Um, and. And I remember everyone hated me because, you know, for one time we were pitching Saab and I remember for 21 straight days, I had literally everyone in the office till three in the morning, every single day, 21 straight days. And we lost. <laughs> and we kept, we kept almost winning and losing and losing. And a, a car account, at least at that time, was like making your bones. That was, right. that was what made you kind of on the A-list. Um, yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you, I mean, I love... I love watching movies and reading books about people, watching people make it, quote unquote, going from, you know, where they want to be to all of a sudden getting there, right? And was there a moment in your life where you actually could feel your life changing, where you could actually say, I, I think I'm making it. I think, I think I'm, I'm you there. You know, in this business, you're really scared to ever say that mm. because uh, you're paranoid because they really are out to get you. Right. I mean, winning clients is so hard and losing it, just one little thing, you know, boom, uh, change of marketing director or anything like that. And so you always, you never want, you know, anytime I start to feel that way, the ad gods would just shoot down a lightning bolt from <laughs> Mount Olympus and say, 
No, not so fast. So there are Greeks in advertising too, along with Jews and Italians. The, the, the ad, the the ad gods, gods are, 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 get very angry sometimes. I mean, sometimes I had to sacrifice an account executive or two just to appease them. <laughs> just to appease them. Um, what's, you've obviously made a lot of really great decisions over the course of your career, many more good than bad, I'm assuming, uh, as evidenced by the fact that I'm here wanting to ask you about your life. But is yeah. there a bad, is there a decision <laughs> that you made that you would love to take back oh, a business oh decision? God. Oh, here's my rule about bad decisions and bad thing. The worse the thing is that happened, the longer it takes to be funny. Okay, that's fairly right. easy to So understand. some things yeah. took like five years to be funny. The dumbest thing we ever did was in the late 90s, we opened an office in San Francisco. Uh, right at the beginning of the dot-com. Mm. And all of a sudden we had a hundred people. And we went, wow, this is great. It's gonna last forever. And we took this huge space for like an eight year lease or something ridiculous. And then, you know, in a couple of years we had an office, but not an agency. <laughs> <laughs> that was the dumbest thing we ever did. You're I still that? don't is think there... it's funny. No, I was gonna say, is there anything that still keeps you oh, up? Actually, this... And it was like, in that part of San Francisco, you know, like it kept getting gentrified because right. they would take more space in the bad areas and move a block or two. And we went way out. Like, it's going to be great. It's yeah. going to be crazy expensive. And then we're going to have this great space. And I remember the day that I thought this isn't going to happen. I'm sitting in the glass conference room in a pitch. And it went, <laughs> there was a glass wall and it went through to the street. And I remember look up and there's sort of like this homeless guy kind of hanging out by the, and all of a sudden a wall of yellow comes splattering against the conference From his top or his bottom? From his bottom. From, okay, I didn't know if we were I talking went, vomit or we were talking. I don't think this one's gonna, gonna make it. No, that's, that's, that's the bad omen I feel like. That's the that's bad not, omen, uh, yeah. Well, what was the best advice you ever got? Best advice I ever got was, uh, in the first couple of years, we were, again, we were known as the sort of outliers. And um, in fact, uh, uh, people used to hate us because we were, you know, uh, who are these guys? Who do they think they are? And, and funny, one day we made T-shirts that said, I'd never worked for those fucks at Kirschenbaum Bond, and we all wore them around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, we were, we were sort of outside the industry. Guy who was the CEO of Shiat Day at that point, named Bob Wolf, had lunch with me once, and he said, you should be part of the industry. And I said, yeah, you're right. So I remember I joined the 4As, I got on the board of the 4As, I started to get, get more involved in the industry, and he was right. Oh, I think you've carved out uh, a pretty badass niche for yourself, and I want to thank you so much for sitting down with me. Um, this has been really enlightening and, and uh, educational and entertaining, and I expected nothing less. So, John Bond, thank you very much. Thank you.